Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 78, a wild four-game set between the Cubs and Brewers, adding another chapter to the I-94 rivalry. We're going to break it all down. There's a lot of meat on that bone. That's a 25-ounce T-bone that we can break down as the Brewers get set for their final series before the All-Star break. The Reds in town starting tonight. The Bucks are shoring up their roster. Robin Lopez back. Malik Beasley signing. A.J. Green is back in the fold. There's one roster spot left as Summer League is set to get underway in Vegas tonight. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's high! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin record-breaking run! Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit the center! Snap. He looks, he throws, it's a And there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, knocked away, it's stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, and a pinnacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there, and they're the champions. They have done it. We've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, that Cubs-Brewers series was a wild one over the course of four games at AmFam Field. And what really added to it, the extra element there, was the crowd. It looked packed in pretty much every game, Monday through Thursday, 4th of July week. It was probably, I want to say, 50-50 Brewers-Cubs fans. I didn't go to the games, but just watching them on TV and listening to the crowd chants, it was probably 55-45 Cubs or 60-40 Cubs fans, if we're going to be totally honest. I would guess a lot of Cubs fans made their way up from the north side. I think I called them mouth-breathing amoebas on the blog this week, and I think that's an apt description. I think that's accurate. But I'm sure many of them made their way up to spend some time on the lake and spend the whole 4th of July week in Milwaukee and go to the games throughout the course of the week. But that really packed people into the park. You heard a lot of Let's Go Cubbies chants and a lot of Let's Go Brewers chants. I had some firsthand accounts from buddies that did go to the games that said to me that the Cubs fans that were there were as annoying as ever. Kind of reminded me just the view of it on TV. It kind of reminded me of 2007 or 2008 or 2017, 2018. Those years where both teams were vying for the division, both teams vying for a playoff spot. It was that way too when the Cubs were in the NLCS in 2015 when they won their championship in 2016. They really took over AmFam Field or Miller Park those years where it was probably 70 30 or 80 20 Cubs fans. But that was the sort of vibe that I got just watching the games. And then I got those accounts from my buddies that did go to a few of the games that, yeah, it was kind of an annoying time. You know what's weird? When I go to Brewers-Cubs games at AmFam Field, and I don't go to a ton of them anymore, but I've been to, in my lifetime, probably a dozen or more Brewers-Cubs games at American Family Field at Miller Park. And I've been to probably five or six Cubs-Brewers games at Wrigley Field. And the atmosphere and the tenor to it could not be any different. It's like two totally different fan bases. The Cubs fans that go to Brewers-Cubs games at Miller Park at AmFam Field 
are just the most obnoxious. They've got two beers in their hands at all times. They're like the real-life personification of the two-fisted slobber or the two-fisted slopper that used to be on the county stadium jumbotron. They're wearing an Anthony Rizzo jersey that hasn't fit for three seasons. They're talking trash. They're spitting. They're loud. It's the worst. But if you go to Wrigley Field, it's much more subdued, good-natured trash-talking, good-natured ribbon, guys being dudes, not a big deal, no one going too crazy or too personal with anything. It's a fun time. I have never had a bad time at a Brewers-Cubs game at Wrigley Field, hanging out in Wrigleyville. I have never had a good time at a Brewers-Cubs game at MFAM Field or Miller Park, except if you're there and you're talking trash and you're kind of getting into it, and then the Brewers win, and you can say adios as they go back toward I-94 and pay their tolls on the way out. That part of it's fun, but the actual three hours that you're there, not a great time unless the Brewers are rolling. And it's especially difficult if you went on Tuesday or Wednesday this week, those close losses where it looked like the Brewers had a win, especially Wednesday. And then the Cubs rally and they beat you. That's tough. That's tough to be at AmFan Field for those kinds of games with those types of Cubs fans there. But it is a bit peculiar how different it is that Cubs Brewers atmosphere at AmFan Field in Milwaukee and the Cubs Brewers atmosphere at Wrigley Field down in Chicago. Wrigley's a great time. It's just a two totally different situations. Let's break it down. Let's start on Monday. Monday coming back from a 7-3 road trip, down 6-0 in a blink in that game against the Cubs, and then the Brewers rally led by Jamai Jones. Who? Jamai Jones. They basically picked him up that day, had not had an at-bat at the major league level since 2021. He steps to the plate in a 6-3 game, two outs in the seventh inning, bases loaded. The first pitch he sees, he hits a rocket off the wall that ties the game, and the Brewers come back to win 8-6 on Monday. And it was after that win where I publicly declared my love for this season's team, this version of the Brewers. You always love the franchise. If whatever franchise you root for, for me, it's all the hometown teams, the Packers, Brewers, Bucks, Badgers, whatever team you root for, you always love that franchise. But I am a firm believer that every season has a unique emotion to it. There are teams you love. There are scrappy teams, underdog teams, teams overcoming injuries. There are also situations of teams where expectations were high, Packers last year, and those don't come to fruition. And even though you're rooting for them every week, you don't necessarily love the vibe of the team. And there are certain seasons where you're kind of unsure, but then the team starts to get hot. Maybe they go on a 7-3, 10-game road trip, and then they come back home and they rally from a 6-0 deficit against your hated rival and win that game too. And things are starting to click, and the vibes feel good. Then you fall in love, and you fall in love in those moments. I have fallen in love with this team. That was my feeling on Monday with all of that good momentum. I'm falling in love with this team. I put it on Facebook. I have officially fallen in love with the 2023 Milwaukee Brewers. And then they suffer two of the worst heartbreaking losses of the year. And it looked like they were going to blow it on Thursday. When the Cubs tied the game late on Thursday, I thought I had jinxed the team. I thought my love had killed the team. I compared it on Thursday. If you've ever had to read the book Mice and Men, the John Steinbeck novel. I don't even know when it came out in the 40s. But I had to read it for a lit class many, many years ago. I'm sure many of you did as well. I'm not going to tell you the whole plot. But there is a main character in the book of Mice and Men named Lenny. Lenny is not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Lenny means well. He's a big, strong guy, but not the smartest character out there. And one thing Lenny has to be careful about 
is he doesn't understand his own strength, and he's got powerful emotions. They use a situation early in the book where they describe Lenny loving a dog so much that he almost hugged him too tight, that he almost killed the dog because he was hugging him too tight because he loved him so much. That's how I felt. (laughs) At Thursday when the game got tied at five, I felt like I am Lenny. I have killed this team with my love. I declared my love on Monday. They have heartbreak on Tuesday, heartbreak on Wednesday, and knocking on the door of heartbreak on Thursday to the Cubs of all teams. Luckily, they rallied on Thursday. We'll talk about more of that game in a second. But they win on Monday, and then on Tuesday, the 4th of July matchup, looked like they were going to rally again, this time down 6-2, to two, score 2 in the 8th and 2 in the ninth, led by Christian Yelich. We'll be discussing more of him coming up on an individual look. But they get the game tied. It goes to extras. They strand the ghost runner in the top of the 10th inning. When you are able to get through the top of the 10th as the home team in this new extra innings format, you feel like that's a win. We just have to get the runner home from second. We're going to win this game. Bunt him over. Not popular by today's analytics. Just bunt him over and sack fly him home. They get to the bottom of the 10th, one out, that runner's still on second base, and then Jason Lane, third base coach, struck. Had Owen Miller hit a single to left field. It was Andrew Monasterio at second. Monasterio is rounding third. Ian Happ rears back and throws it home. And I'm telling you, this was not even close. I said in Thursday's blog, they could have done one of those quick word advertisements they do on the Bally Sports broadcast where they go, well, now a quick word from Potawatomi, and then that techno house music plays and everybody dances to it i know you're dancing your recliner i am too or the quick word from quick trip the 15 second ads while the game is playing side by side they could have done one of those and gotten back to the game and monasterio still would not have been at home plate to get tagged out that's how out he was and after that owen miller kind of fell asleep when he was rounding first and watching the play he should have been on his way to second the whole time monasterio's thrown at home and somehow Owen Miller gets thrown out at second, and the inning ends. The Cubs recorded three outs and faced two batters. And at the end of this game, they will have recorded six outs, only facing four batters. Cubs get a run in the top half of the inning. I don't know that you can reasonably expect a team to strand a ghost runner two innings in a row, but you're only down one. Runner at second base gets to third with the Rymel Tapia infield hit, or the infield out. Move the runner to third. And Bryce Terang came up, hit a shallow fly ball to left field. They decide to test the Hap arm again. And again, Hap guns down, this time Owen Miller at home plate. The 11th inning send was at least closer. It was kind of a bang-bang play. And I don't have as much of a problem with that one. Neither send was good. The problem I have in the 10th inning is that if you just throw the stop sign up with Monasterio at third, you have runners at the corners and only one out. And all you need is a sack fly to score Monasterio and you win the game. The reason I don't hate the 11th inning send as much is because the catch by Hap was the second out of the inning, which means if you hold the runner, you are saying the Brewers have to get a hit to win the game. The offense has been better recently, but it's still not good. It's the second worst offense in the National League. When you are relying on them to get a hit to win the game, the likelihood of that you feel is probably, what, 20%, 25% on the high side that they would be able to get that done. In that instance, I don't mind challenging the throw or challenging Ian Happ to make the throw. If his throw is up the line or off the line just a little bit, Miller probably scores and they win the game. I have no issue challenging an outfielder's arm in that scenario. The one that was infuriating was the 10th inning when you had a runner at third with less than two outs. There was no reason to send him unless you felt like it was going to be a close play, and the gap by which Monasterio was thrown out made it all the worse when you watched it back on replay. 
You end up losing that game by the final of, what, 7-6. to six. Then on Wednesday, looked like they were going to bounce back, had that 3-1 to one lead, actually hit pretty well against a lefty, Justin Steele. They do not hit lefties that have five or six ERAs well. So if you're facing a lefty that's an all-star, and Steele is an all-star this year, sub-3 ERA, not expecting a lot from the offense. They don't go crazy, but nine hits with this Brewer offense, fairly good. And they put three runs on the board. Willie Adamas got them in front in the sixth inning with that solo shot. They tack on another run to make it 3-1. to one. Devin Williams is coming on with how good he's been. All-star closer, you figure, okay, get three outs. You bounce back from that horrific loss in extra innings on Tuesday. And what happens? You knew immediately that inning was doomed. That was going to be a that's baseball babe kind of inning with the Cody Bellinger weak contact that led off the inning with a single. Right when that fell in, that little bloopy single, you had that ominous feeling in your gut of, ooh, this is going to be one of those baseball innings, isn't it? A lot of soft contact, some not-so-good defense, some really good defense from Bryce Terang in that inning. But other than that, some not-so-good defense. It just had that feeling. Eventually, the Cubs get runners on second and third with two outs. Devin was one strike away from the save and the 3-1 to one win. And then Mike Toucher, Toucher, Talker, never even heard of him. He slices a double down the line. That was really the only hit that was solid contact. That was 88 miles an hour off the bat. It was well-placed. There was no way Yelly could get to it. That was truly the only well-hit ball of the inning. That drops in and ties the game. Next batter, routine ground ball. Tom Imansky, ground ball to third. Brian Anderson, who has been pretty good at third, not just with fielding, but also with his accuracy on his throws to first. This one he throws a little low. And Owen Miller's over there on Wednesday because Rowdy Telez was put on the IL. We'll have more on that in a minute. Owen Miller playing out of position, could not dig that out. The error allows the go-ahead run to score. Just one of those innings. Cubs take a 4-3 lead. Brewers don't rally, and they lose by that 4-3 final. Two gut-punch, rip-your-heart-out losses back-to-back. Then we cut to yesterday, Thursday. Brewers down one nothing. Freddie Peralta on the hill. He was okay. It was a Freddie start. It was, again, we've talked about it, another kind of Freddie he gets a lot of swing and miss. He gets a lot of strikeouts. He had 10 strikeouts in five and a third, and he was touching off toward 99 miles an hour on that fastball. We talked about that a week or two ago where it's been odd that we've seen Freddie's fastball be so good and the velocity is so up, three or four miles per hour per fastball, where he's normally riding between 92 and 94, and 94s were pretty rare. All of a sudden, he's throwing 96, 97. Yesterday, he topped out at 98.7 on one of those fastballs. But he's also getting hit more. I don't know. Is that correlation or causation? Do I even know what those two things mean? Do those fit there? I don't know. Somebody tell me. I don't know what's going on. His stuff is better, but his results are worse. That could be one of those like the Devin Williams inning. That could be a that's baseball babe thing. I don't know. They said after the game, he said and the and council said and the organization has said they feel he's getting really close to being a dominant pitcher. He's just not that right there right now, but he's getting close. He had one of those starts again, five and a third, ten strikeouts, but he gives up three runs. He gives up another home run. Down one nothing. They put four up in the fourth inning. Big hit by Joey Weimer with two outs to tie the game on an RBI single. And then Christian Yelich, stay hot Yelly. Opposite field, vintage, three-run home run with two outs. Put the Brewers up 4-1. to one. Then another former NL MVP who has been mired in a season's-long slump, Cody Bellinger, is having a nice year in Chicago. Both of them have kind of figured it out. Yelly, after the 2018-2019 seasons, 
got himself into a slump that he has been unable to get out of until this year. And Bellinger, who won the 2019 MVP that Yelly would have won if he didn't shatter his kneecap, he has been in a horrible multi-season slump since then. He is starting to get out of it. He hits that two-run home, two homer off of Freddie Peralta, makes it 4-3. to three. Brewers had a 5-3 lead in the eighth inning, and they go to J.C. Mejia. Mejia got the first two outs, then with two outs, a single and a game-tying Jan Gomes two-run bomb. Back and forth we go. Bottom of the eighth inning, Victor Caratini burns his former team again. Caratini's been really good as a backup catcher this year. He hit the walk-off home run against the Cubs on the 4th of July last year. My wife and I were at that game, and he hits a go-ahead home run in the bottom of the eighth inning here off of Michael Fulmer's 6-5 lead. Yoel Piamps comes in. What a season he's having. Gives up the one hit, but works around that. Gets his third save of the year. His ERA dips under two in the first half of the schedule. And the Brewers do get that 6-5 to five win and hang on for the four-game series split. But look at all four of those games. Rally from 6 nothing to win on Monday. Extra innings loss on Tuesday. Blown save on Wednesday. Back and forth all game on Thursday with the go-ahead home run late. These were four really entertaining games. Council was taking some heat on Brewer Twitter Twitter for the Mejia decision in the eighth inning yesterday. I don't know what to tell you guys. The bullpen is on fumes. And the reason the bullpen is on fumes is because the offense hasn't been good. As we just talked about, it's been better. I think they're averaging five or six runs a game over the last couple of weeks, which is about double where they had been. Even with that jolt, they're still the second-worst offense in the National League. Because the offense isn't good, they're playing an incredible amount of close games. And when you're playing close games, you use your high-leverage relievers. It feels like Hobie Milner, Piops, Pagaro, and Williams have been basically in every game or in every other game. That's not sustainable. It's just not. You can't have all of those guys making 70 or 75 appearances this year. At some point, the wheels are going to fall off, and you just hope it's not going to happen in August or September when you're really making a push for a playoff spot or a division championship. At some point, you've got to find other guys. He used Pagaro in the seventh inning. He was going to use Piomps in the ninth inning because Williams was unavailable on Thursday after the blown save on Wednesday with a lot of pitches thrown. That was the situation. He had to find a guy to get that eighth inning clean and get it to Piomps in the ninth. If you want to squabble about, okay, use Mejia in the seventh and then use Pagaro, a more known commodity in the eighth inning, Fine. If you want to make that argument, fine. Because J.C. Mejia's numbers at the Major League level are horrifically bad. They're not very good at the AAA level either. It's a tough situation for him. A two-run lead against a team that's been pretty good in this series. He almost got the three-up, three-down inning. But I don't know what you want Council to do. At some point, this team either needs to start winning some games 10-1 to or 9-3. to Or they're going to have to find at the deadline a bullpen arm or two to keep everybody fresh, to keep Piamps and Williams and Pagaro fresh, and to keep Hobie Milner as fresh as you can. What they're doing right now makes it very difficult to keep doing down the stretch. And maybe that's a reason this team does see these all-star, pre-all-star break collapses. I talked about that in the blog on Thursday, too, after the losses on Tuesday and Wednesday. It felt like they were headed to another Brewer-patented collapse before the All-Star break. We've seen this happen almost every year. But a big part of that the last three years is what we just said. The offense has not been good. Because of that, you're in a lot of close games because the starting pitching has been pretty good. And because of that, you're using your high-leverage relievers every day. When you get to this stage of the year, just before the All-Star break, bullpen arms are out of gas. They're left of the slash, as Kramer would say. And they need a break. And maybe that's why we see this team leak oil before the All-Star break. It feels like basically every year in the council era. Maybe not 2018 or 2019. Or was 2018 the year they lost five games in Pittsburgh before the All-Star break? 
It just feels like that happens a lot. But because the offense has been relatively inconsistent for the Brewers over the last four or five years and the starting pitching has been good, you end up in these close games and you're throwing your best relievers out there every day or every other day. At some point, you've got to find somebody else. That's why he went to Mejia in the eighth inning. You end up with the series split. After that, the Brewers sit at 47 and 41 on the year. Now, Christian Yelich, I think he gets into the All-Star game either today or this weekend. There was an injury. You're never rooting for an injury. But it was Corbin Carroll, I believe, for the Diamondbacks, who's having a fantastic year. He was penciled in as a starter in the outfield for the NL. He suffered a shoulder injury late last night on the West Coast. You've got to believe, if he's not going to play, and I would doubt he's going to play, the next outfielder up is Yelly. He has continued to torch the baseball even after the All-Star selections. Coming out of yesterday's game, what is he hitting now? 287. His OPS is almost 850. You're starting to see the power return, too. 11 home runs on the year now after yesterday's three-run bomb, 45 driven in. Also stole his 21st base yesterday, which puts him top 10 in the league. If you go by fantasy numbers, I know not everybody is going to use that as a great metric to figure out whether or not a guy's having a good year because it doesn't really factor in defense. But if you go on Yahoo's baseball fantasy app or ESPN's, Yelly's a top 10 player offensively in almost every fantasy format because he's giving you so much right now. He's giving you hits. He's giving you average. He's taking his walks. He's stealing bags, which is incredibly valuable in fantasy. He's starting to hit for power. He's doing everything out there, and his defense has not been bad. I don't know that we're ever going to see Gold Glove Yelly from Miami come back, but we've certainly seen at this juncture, given what we've seen now throughout the month of May, the month of June, and what we've seen so far in the month of July, has he not? I don't think he's had a game where he hasn't had a hit in the month of July. Nope. He, well, what is the hitting streak at now? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven game hitting streak. In the month of July, he's hitting 450 and has two home runs now and eight driven in. What we've seen is at the very least the return of Miami Yelly. And I don't know what he's doing different. We had a B93 texter this morning say, What do you think has triggered this turnaround for Yelly? And I said, I am a radio DJ and a podcaster and a blogger. I have no idea how elite-level athletes who are MVP level and then drop off, how they get that back. And I did say on the air, probably the last thing or the last person that wants to talk about it is Christian Yelich. Baseball is a quirky sport where you can be the best in the game, and then if you start to get into your own head mentally and you overthink things and then you get in that kind of a rut, you can lose it like that. We've seen that happen in baseball over the history of baseball many, many times where a once elite player, MVP player, all-star player just goes through a bad slump. It gets in their head, and some of those guys never get out of it. Chris Davis of the Orioles, there are examples of that all across baseball's history where guys just start to overthink it, and they never are able to recapture what they once had. It looks like Yelly's on his way to doing that, but I bet he doesn't want to talk about it. When you're hot in baseball, in the little amount of baseball that I've covered collegiately, when a player is hot or going well at the plate, the last thing they want to do is talk to a dork like me about why they're getting it turned around. Hey, Yelly, looks like you're making some pretty solid contact these days, much better than the last couple of years. What do you think goes into that? He doesn't want to answer that question. He doesn't want to think about it because if he thinks about the answer, then it's in his brain. Then the next time he's at the plate, he's thinking about what he said. And is that accurate or not accurate? You don't want to think. You just want to act in baseball or in podcasting or in morning radio. That's the one spot on the Venn diagram where morning radio and being an elite baseball athlete crossover. You don't want to think too much, and I never do. Monday through Friday, 6 till 10 a.m. on B93. 
but he is probably the last guy that even wants to talk about it. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to tell visually what's different. He is making great contact like we saw in 2018 or 2019. He's been more patient. The one thing that I could point to just watching the games, he does not appear to be biting on breaking balls as much as he had been the past two years. If you threw Christian Yelich a curveball in 2021, he was swinging at it 100% of the time and never making contact. His patience has been a lot better with breaking stuff, and he's taking a lot of walks. He always took a lot of walks, but even more this year. I would say that's probably the number one thing is his eye at the plate appears to be better. He's picking up the breaking stuff earlier and laying off of it and waiting for pitches in the zone. And once they're in the zone, he's hitting them hard. That's one thing that has not changed. Even with the bad numbers in 2020 and the pandemic-shortened year and the really bad numbers in 2021 where he was borderline not even an everyday player anymore and the okay numbers last year, especially after they moved him to leadoff, One thing he's always done is when he makes contact and that ball is in the zone, it's hard contact. His problem in the last few years has been he's swinging at all of these pitches, especially breaking stuff low in the zone and in the dirt, swinging it way too much of that stuff. I have noticed he isn't doing that as much. But what all goes into that and then what has turned his whole season around from the last few years – I don't know, but it's been a pleasure to watch, and I would imagine we will hear Yelly is going to be an all-star at some point again, either today or tomorrow, taking the spot of Carroll. Now, let's talk about first base. Rowdy Telez went on the 10-day IL with forearm soreness. Okay, sure. Sure. Sure, Brewer doctors. I'm sure the Brewers are not the only team that does this. It feels like recently the Brewers have done this a lot, and a big contributing factor is, again, how bad the offense has been and guys have been in slumps It feels like the Brewers always have two or three guys that are in deep slumps. But recently it feels as though the Brewers, when this happens, say, all right, let's just put you on the DL. Let's say you have a cramp. (laughs) Let's say you have a calf cramp or something, contusion, and they put him on the shelf for a week or two. I don't think that it's a coincidence that we're three days away from the All-Star break and Rowdy goes on the IL in a bad slump with forearm soreness two days before the All-Star break, which would give him about a full two weeks off. When he comes back, that's why Owen Miller's playing out of position at first base. I guess you've got to see what Rowdy can do when he comes back. I said in the blog, we wrote about this on Thursday. I like Rowdy. He's a really fun guy. It seems like he's a good clubhouse guy. Fans love chanting his name. He's got one of the most chantable names in baseball. At this point, we kind of know what he is, right? It's a large sample size. If you give Rowdy to less 500 at-bats a year or 550 at-bats a year, which is a pretty normal everyday player amount, He'll probably hit you 25 to 30 home runs, but he's also going to hit 205, 210, and he's going to be in these week-long or two-week or three-week-long stretches where it seems like he cannot get a hit. And I don't know how you live with that at first base year in, year out. The Brewers have been trying to replace Prince Fielder for 12 years. Prince Fielder is out of baseball. He's not even playing the sport anymore. And they're still trying to replace him. All the different guys going back to Matt Gamble and the return of Lyle Overbay and Adam Lind and Chris Carter and all the different people with Eric Thames. Jesus Aguilar was pretty good for a while. They've been trying to find a steady presence there for a long time. You get little bits. Rowdy was not bad two years ago. And in spots last year, he was okay. Jesus had about a year and a half where he was okay. Thames had about four months where he was okay to pretty good. They just haven't been able to find a guy over there, which leads me to, I think you got to bring up Keston Hira. That's not going to be a popular sentiment. They've got to see one last time whether there's any upside there or not. I don't believe there's a long-term upside to Rowdy Teles. If you want to keep him because he's cheap and he's going to hit for power and he's a left-handed bat at Ampham Field, which always plays, 
that's fine, but you have to live with what he is if you're going to do that. He's going to hit you 25 to 30 home runs. He's going to hit 210, and he's not going to give you the best defense at first base. If you can live with that and be a playoff contending team or a title contending team, fine. But you have to look and see again at Keston Hira and see if there's any upside there. He's hitting 326 in AAA this year with 14 home runs. His OPS is over 1,000. He's splitting time at first base and DHing. Defense was never really his game. We knew that when they drafted him in 2018 as a second baseman, that he was going to be a liability there. But hopefully he hit enough to at least balance that out or weight it more on his side because his offense is so good you'd live with some bad defense at second base. He's not going to be a gold glove defensive first baseman, but at least he's a guy who's taken reps over there. Owen Miller has never been over there until this week. You've got a fish totally out of water right now at first base. Why not call up the guy who is raking in AAA and who has played some defense at first base in the last couple of years? And if you look back at Keston's numbers last year, there were plenty of fans that were wondering at the end of the year when the offense was so bad, why not give this guy a shot? He hit 220 last year, sure, but his OPS was 765, which meant he was taking walks, and when he was hitting, he was hitting for power. He was hitting doubles. He hit 14 home runs. 765 OPS last year for how bad this Brewer offense has been the last three years is upper half of the Brewer offense. So his numbers last year were not horrible. We've seen this song and dance before with him at AAA where he rakes at AAA, you call him up, and then he really scuffles at the major league level. He is what some people would describe as a quad A player, a 4A player, a player who's always going to be good at AAA and who's never going to be able to transition again to major league baseball because it's just that much more difficult. But he's got one option left. You can't totally cut bait on him. When we've seen him get hot in 2019 when he was battling maybe for a rookie of the year spot and, and it times in 2020 and last year in 2022, you still see some flashes. I think with one option left and with the other options right now at first base, I don't understand the harm in calling him up after the All-Star break and just giving him a month or giving him whatever, how many weeks until the trade deadline, giving him three weeks until the trade deadline, play him every day, you can keep Rowdy on the IL with this phantom forearm soreness. Give Keston three and a half weeks of at-bats and basically tell him this is it for our organization. Somebody out there will take a chance on him, you would think, even though the Brewers did cut him and nobody picked him up. If they just flat out cut him from the organization, I would think there's an Oakland A's or a Royals team or somebody out there that's going to win 60 games this year that would give him a chance just to see but I think you sit him down and you say, this is it. This is the last call for you with our organization. We want you to do well. We're going to give you four weeks worth of at-bats, given what you've done at the AAA level this year, to see if you can produce consistently at this level. And if he can't, you figure out where Rowdy's at. And if you're not comfortable with that, then you have time before the trade deadline to do something. Another name that's out there is Nelson Cruz, former Brewer, who has 400-plus career home runs. I don't know that Nelson Cruz has a defensive glove in his bag anymore. He used to be a right fielder. He played a little first base. He's been just a DH for many, many years. And Nelson Cruz was cut by the Padres. But again, the Brewer offense has been so bad. Nelson Cruz has an OPS of 750. He's hitting 243 with five home runs. Given what you've gotten from Jesse Winker at the DH spot, I maybe would take a flyer on Nelson Cruz too. Maybe he can DH. Maybe you could throw him at first base a little bit. But it does feel like you need to do one last attempt with Keston. Give him one last chance to prove he can do it at the major league level because first base has just been a mess, and I don't know that Rowdy's the answer. And at least Keston is younger and we think has a chance at having some upside. I would hope they're going to do that after the All-Star break. We will see. 
Brewers sitting at 47 and 41. They have a crucial six-game stretch, three before the All-Star break, three after the All-Star break, all against the Reds. The Reds won again on Thursday. Nobody hotter in baseball right now. They have a two-game lead on the Brewers in the division entering play today. Brewers are one back of the last wild-card spot. I think we talked about that on Monday's podcast, that that's not necessarily out of play the way that it was the first couple of months of the year. Two back in the division, one back of the wild-card. Reds in town for three tonight, and then you're in Cincy coming out of the All-Star break for three on the road. I don't want to lowball it and say go three and three, but if you go three and three and you keep the status quo and you stay two games back and you wait to see as the league adjusts to some of these young Reds players, the way the league adjusted to Bryce Terang and Joey Weimer and those guys that were raking early for the Brewers, if you can go three and three here, you stay two games back and you wait for the Reds to cool down. If they're going to stay this hot the rest of the year, it's going to be really tough to catch them, but they're not. They're not going to stay this hot the rest of the year. That way, you win this series maybe at home, you lose the series in Cincy, you still have the lead in the season series, and you just wait to see how this thing plays out for the Reds as they cool down or they hit a slump at some point. You'd love to go 4-2, and two, though. You'd love to win both these series, go 4-2, and two, pick up a game. It all starts tonight. What a pitching matchup. Corbin Burns on the hill taking on the star ace, up-and-coming ace for the Reds, the lefty Andrew Abbott. He's already pitched once against the Brewers and got a win, the only win the Reds got in that four-game series a couple of weeks ago. He is unbeaten on the year. ERA is 1.3. He has been as advertised. And, of course, you've got Corbin Burns, a Cy Young winner on the mound, trying to get back to that form tonight. Should be a good one. 7-10, 3-10 on Sunday. On Saturday, excuse me, 1-10 on Sunday. Then the All-Star break with the Derby on Monday and the game itself on Tuesday. Then some downtime before they pick it up in Cincy next Friday. This is a big six-game stretch, though. We're past the halfway point, knocking on the door of the All-Star game. You're in the division race. Hopefully, you're getting to a point where you consider yourself a buyer come the trade deadline. This is a big three-game stretch tonight and a big six-game stretch overall for the Brewers. All right, real quick on the Bucks front, we had the updated info on Giannis. We talked about on Monday he had a cleanup procedure on that left knee. The left knee was the one he hurt in the 2021 title run. By the way, yesterday was one year, two years since game one of the NBA Finals. And I put in the blog and I went back and rewatched the intro on ABC that night and it just gave me goosebumps all over again. I'll never forget Mike Breen saying, welcome to the NBA Finals game one from Phoenix. And the graphic had the Bucks on it and the championship trophy. I'll never forget the feeling I had the first time I watched that two years ago yesterday. But that was the knee that he injured that year. The cleanup procedure hopefully gets it taken care of heading into the year. That sounds like is what is going to keep him out of the FIBA World Cup this summer, which, as we talked about on Monday, is a good thing. You want him to take an extended break here. They have had off since the end of April. Take the whole summer off and ramp it up with the new head coach in September, October. They also did firm up a few roster spots. Robin Lopez is back. The Lopez brothers. Lopez spent one year in Milwaukee. The 2019-2020 year when they were on pace for 70 wins and then got undermined by the pandemic and the bubble. He is back. I don't expect to see him play all that much. It's good insurance. If it makes Brooke happy, fine. We do have a team of nepotism, don't we? Where you bring in Robin to keep Brooke happy and you bring in Thanasis to keep Giannis happy. Nepotism running wild in Milwaukee. I don't mind it, though. He's a guy where... If it's a stretch of schedule where you want to get Brooke a little bit of load management or if he gets hurt at some point in the year, it's not bad insurance. A 6'11 guy who could run the floor a little bit, play defense, not going to give you a ton on offense. But he is back in a known commodity, good locker room guy too. They also bring in Malik Beasley. 
I thought this was an underrated signing. One year and only $2.7 million. He split time between Utah and L.A. last year. He was a part of that roster transformation for the Lakers before the all, or before the trade deadline or right after the trade deadline. He got a lot of minutes there early in L.A. He did play himself out of the rotation with the Lakers. But at points in his career, he's been a 20-point-per-game scorer. Even with falling out of favor with Darvin Ham in L.A. last year, he shot 40% just about from beyond the arc, and the Bucks are always on the lookout for spot-up shooters. Seems like that's a good role for him to fill, and you get some guard depth, and at that price, good. They also sign A.J. Green to a two-year deal, the first year guaranteed. He was in his rookie year last year. Maybe you find something with him in the second round of last year's draft. When he got in, pretty good. He was not overwhelmed by the moment. He played in 35 games, not a huge sample size, and he started one game. He was a guy where when there were load management nights, you'd see him a lot, and he shot 43% from beyond the arc. If he can get more minutes and continue to hit threes at that clip, he's going to have a spot on this team. Most Bucks fans, myself included, liked what we saw when he was on the floor, so they do bring him back. They have one roster spot left, and Thanasis does not have a contract. How deep does that nepotism go? A lot of Bucks fans on Twitter have been talking about, could we just find a way to make him a coach? You know, you could have as many coaches as you want. You can have eight assistant coaches. Adrian Griffin did that when we had the Griffin podcast when he was traded to Milwaukee and just said, hey, I can help this team more as a coach than as a player, and that's exactly what they did. That started his coaching career back in, what was it, 2009 or 2010? But a lot of Bucks fans have been talking about that on Twitter. Could we maybe make him a coach or something? Put him in the front office. <laughs> Give him a title so you don't have to waste the roster spot anymore. Look, the 15th roster spot is not going to make or break a title. Bucks fans are very concerned about the backup point guard position. They knew to need a backup point guard. I still think we're going to see a two-for-one deal at some point that maybe brings Colin Sexton over from Utah. We've discussed that. Maybe that frees up a roster spot. But the 15th guy, whether it's the Nasus, whether it's whoever – that's not going to be the make or break between this team winning a title or not. For that reason, I'm not really concerned about them maybe throwing that last spot again at Thanasis, but it is an intriguing thing to watch because I think we all agree Thanasis probably isn't playing on an NBA team if his brother is not Giannis, but he does bring value to the team in that he communicates well with Giannis, he keeps Giannis's emotions in check. There are things he does that are intangible that are not necessarily things on the court that you do like, but maybe he could do that as a coach. One roster spot left. Summer League gets underway tonight or this evening or this afternoon, I guess. 4 p.m. tip time between the Nuggets Summer League team and the Bucks Summer League team in Vegas. That's on ESPNU if you have access to that this evening. That'll do it for us here on your Friday. Going to be kind of a quiet week next week. We'll be recapping the Brewers' Red Series on Monday, getting set for the All-Star break. Friday's podcast one week from today with not a whole lot going on. Could be a short one. But we'll get back after on Monday. Have a happy, safe weekend. We'll chat with you then. <laughs>